Hello and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent for Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're taping today on Thursday, April 22nd at 10.30 a.m. Happy Earth Day. As always, news happens fast and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today, we are joined via video conference by Alice Miranda Olstein of Politico. Good morning. Anna Edney of Bloomberg News. Hi there. And Rachel Kors of Stat News. Hi, Julie. So more than enough news for this week. Let us dive right in. I want to start with what I'm calling the great undoing, also known as the Biden administration's changes to or erasures of the Trump administration's health policies. Shameless plug here. We've got a handy interactive tool at khn.org where you can track the changes to these policies. I will put a link in the show notes on the podcast page. So let's start with the reversal of the fetal tissue research restrictions at the National Institutes of Health, which happened Friday afternoon, right after we taped. This was the third big win for reproductive rights advocates last week. Earlier in the week, HHS published proposed regulations that would reverse the so-called gag rule that forbid abortion referrals uh, at federally funded family planning clinics. And the FDA reversed course and said that patients seeking medication abortions do not need to pick up the pills in person, at least for the duration of the COVID public health emergency. Alice, you wrote about the fetal tissue rules. Uh, What was this policy and what will the policy be going forward? So this is more of rolling back the Trump administration's restrictions on uh, different health care policies and procedures. And so this was a Trump rule that went into effect in 2019 that set up a panel of purported experts to review applications for research that used fetal tissue. So this could be, you know, everything from Parkinson's to HIV. It's it's used in a lot of different research of um, infectious diseases, chronic diseases, and this panel had mostly uh, vocally anti-abortion members on it, and they denied almost every application that came before them. And there were additional restrictions on the research that the federal scientists did internally. Um, so it was both research happening at you know universities and, and um, facilities around the country as well as within the government. And so that is now gone. The panel is gone. Research can move forward again. And there is renewed attention on this as well because of the role fetal tissue played in the development of COVID vaccines and potentially other treatments in the future. Yeah. And the monoclonal antibody treatment came from fetal tissue research. Yes. I I wrote in my notes, Julie gets to talk about fetal tissue history because I've been doing this so long. This was a huge, enormous fight in the late 1980s and early 1990s. Before we got to stem cells, we fought about fetal tissue. And in the end, uh, Congress approved the use of fetal tissue and research from induced abortions. There were a whole lot of, of protections that are still in effect because they're written into the law about how the decision to have an abortion has to be separate from the decision to donate fetal tissue, um, you know, so that women wouldn't sort of get pregnant to have an abortion to provide fetal tissue. And in the end, it was hugely bipartisan. There were some really conservative Republicans who voted for this basically because of its potential impact on science, which, as Alice mentioned, it 
to, to some extent, has borne out. Um, stem cell research is a whole nother issue, but on fetal tissue research, fetal tissue has been used for an enormous number of scientific advances. But what really surprised me is how totally, not just bipartisan, but uh, the fight to to allow research using fetal tissue was led by, among others, Strom Thurmond, who had a daughter with diabetes and, uh, and other very conservative Republicans, including some who are still there in the Senate, looking at you, Mitch McConnell. And yet the, you know, this came back as a sort of anti-abortion promise that President Trump kept. So I was a little bit surprised to see this one. And I guess that it was sort of easy for the Biden administration to over turn it fairly quickly because it wasn't a regulation. It was just guidance from the NIH. But Alice, as I mentioned, this was the third reversal on the reproductive health front last week. Was there some plan to do it all together or did it just kind of work out that way? It did come from three different agencies within HHS. I I think it just worked out that way. And I think it's also notable that while a lot of other administration decisions recently, executive actions have involved, you know, a big speech and a big rollout, these were really done quietly and under the radar. You had to be a reporter monitoring for these uh, to be able to see them. And so I think that it's notable as Biden himself has moved a lot to the left on the issue of abortion over his career from being one of the most conservative, vocally anti-abortion folks in the party to where he is now, where he's you know calling for the repeal of the Hyde Amendment and um, backing all of these changes that we're just discussing. I think it's notable that this is not something they want to shout from the rooftops, but rather sort of do quietly at the agency level. Yeah, we talked about that a little bit last week, that this is not something that the Biden administration really wants to lead on. There was some discussion at at one of the White House briefings last week, and Jen Psaki, you could tell, really didn't want to talk about it, but they feel like they need to do it because this is an important part of the Democratic constituency right now. All right, we will move on. Also last Friday, the Biden administration Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, still technically headless, which we will talk about in a moment, revoked a 10-year extension of a Texas Medicaid waiver that basically enabled the state to collect federal funds uh, for people who don't have health insurance without actually expanding Medicaid under the Affordable Care Act. A full third of all people in the so-called Medicaid gap, those who earn too much or otherwise don't qualify for regular Medicaid, but earn too little to qualify for marketplace subsidies, live in Texas, according to my colleagues at the Kaiser Family Foundation. This was a waiver that was supposed to expire next year in 2022, but in January, at the very end of the Trump administration, they rushed in a 10 10-year extension. Any chance this prompts Texas to do something unexpected, like actually expand Medicaid? Well, I would say it's not It's not really looking good at the state level. As you mentioned, kind of one of the issues here is kind of how hospitals are paid for uncompensated care. And the Texas hospitals really want Medicaid expansion. They've been pushing for it for a long time. They still are. You know, they just wrote to um, state leaders um, this week, just reiterating their support for that policy. Um, but this is just kind of a way to, way to help them care for this population when their state leadership, you know, won't, you know, go along with Medicaid expansion. And it doesn't appear that the um, additional incentives that Congress passed earlier this year have had, have moved the needle substantially yet. So we'll see. But I mean, when you have Governor Abbott and the leadership in Texas doesn't look very good in terms of Medicaid expansion. So this waiver has been their way to, you know, help their hospitals and academics have said, you know, it could be considered as sort of a workaround for Medicaid expansion. So the politics are, you know, very fraught around this issue. 
I will point out that uh, Massachusetts used to have one of these uncompensated care Medicaid waivers. And when it was expiring, that was kind of what led to the Massachusetts health insurance law that became the model for the Affordable Care Act. So, I mean, these, these uncompensated care waivers have an interesting history, shall we say. But nobody nobody seems to think that Texas is going to react in, in, in any way other than the way Texas has been reacting for the last 11 years. Last week, we also talked about how the confirmation hearing for Chiquita Brooks-Lashore to head the aforementioned Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services went so smoothly and how perhaps she will have the easiest time being confirmed of any CMS administrator in recent memory. And oops, I clearly spoke too soon. I also mentioned last week how often when a CMS administrator's nomination runs into rough waters, it's often not about anything to do with that specific person, but rather some CMS policy that a senator wants to change. And voila, that's exactly exactly what has happened here. A little breaking news. The Senate Finance Committee just voted on Brooks LeSure's nomination and it tied 14 to 14. Um, so she's she's already going to the floor without a, uh, a affirmative vote from the committee. Rachel, who has thrown a rock into the path of the potential head of one of the largest agencies in the government and why? Yes, Senator John Cornyn um, from Texas uh, decided that he wanted to try and slow down um, her nomination. And I, I had a chance to catch up with him um, in the hall this week. And I think his concern, he was just frustrated. I think he he had a meeting um, with Shakita Brooks-Lashur and, you know, talked about this Medicaid waiver and how important it was to his state. And then from his telling the next day, um, the recession came. So he was frustrated about that and I think really wanted to kind of draw more attention to the issue and talk that over and try and get some congressional pressure on CMS to maybe revisit that decision. And it's important to note that um, CMS, like HHS, they their position is that their, um, their opposition to this waiver was to the process that Texas took and um, that there wasn't the appropriate co- public comment period. So it's unclear whether they actually object to the substance of the waiver. But I mean, it reopens kind of the can of worms for negotiations. So I think Senator Cornyn just, you know, he has a hold on the nomination at the moment. And I can't really stop it if Senate Majority Leader Schumer decides to proceed anyway. But I think it definitely makes things much more interesting than um, the political landscape looked at the at the hearing. And apparently all 14 Republicans on the Finance Committee decided to vote no in support of Senator Cornyn. He's very influential, certainly. All right. Well, let us turn to the COVID pandemic. Um, President Biden took a victory lap this week, having reached his revised goal of 200 million shots in arms before his first 100 days were over. And now shots are open to everyone age 16 and over, also earlier than expected. And small businesses are going to get reimbursed for giving leave to employees both to get their shots and to take a sick day if they have a vaccine reaction. But it is not all good news. The Johnson & Johnson vaccine is still in limbo as we tape. uh, And the FDA issued a pretty scathing report on the Baltimore facility that ruined 15 million doses of that vaccine. Apparently, that facility was in violation of a lot of basic safety procedures. Anna, you've covered the sometimes sorry state of drug manufacturing in other countries. Were you surprised by what the FDA found right here in Maryland? No, actually, I do cover a lot of these issues and drug manufacturing in China and India, but I've tried to also say like, hey, this does happen in the U.S. Um, You know, there have been some facilities just like in West Virginia with Mylan and different ones. And so this one was really bad. Um, I wasn't surprised that things like that are going on in the U.S., but this report that the FDA issued that their inspectors listed observations of what they saw was sort of shocking in that respect. Um, You know, it talked about 
unsanitary conditions. There were employees dragging unsealed bags of medical waste across the floor from one place to the warehouse. And they were ungowning and putting those protective gowns in um, trash cans that were in the same open trash cans that were in the same warehouse as materials that were waiting to be manufactured. So a lot of um, potential for cross-contamination. They were going from one you know room that is making one drug substance into another one without any, you know, without following the proper procedures. So we can see how at one point there were 15 million doses that had to be thrown out because there was some sort of issue with mixing up the J&J and AstraZeneca vaccine drug substances. Um, Yes, important to remember, they were not just making the J&J vaccine, they were making two different vaccines there. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And they make other things there too. I mean, this report did focus on vaccines and all the focus is on vaccines, but there are other drugs that Emergent makes as well. And not everything in the report was just um, about vaccine. There were some mentions of bulk drug substances, which could be other things as well. You know, they, what what the sort of health officials have been saying, particularly about the J&J pause, is that, you know, this shows that the system works because they were able to, to see the side effects quickly and sort of, you know, stop to look and see what it is. I mean, the, the, the argument would be similar here. It shows that the FDA is actually out and inspecting and finding these things. On the other hand, it's hard to know. I mean, when you if you even just read the stories about what was in the report, whether that's going to really boost people's confidence in (laughs) vaccine manufacturing. Right. Well, and who knows if this would have been found if the 15 million doses didn't have to be disposed of because the FDA is not doing inspections of vaccine manufacturers um, because they're applying for emergency use authorization. They don't have to. And so they're typically not going in. They're waiting potentially until they file for full approval, which we haven't seen from anyone yet. And so um, who knows if this would have been found um, if they hadn't gone in because of this other issue. Okay. Well, while we are not quite there yet, we are apparently about to turn the corner where vaccine supply is going to outstrip demand. I will note that here in Washington, D.C. on 420, there was a rather clever or not, depending on your view, gimmick to turn out more people to get vaccines, offering free legal marijuana in an effort they called Joints for Jabs, uh, which many wags on Twitter pointed out would pair very well with the free Krispy Kreme donut that you can also get by proffering your vaccine card. Um, Is this what it's going to take to get herd immunity? I mean, it's funny, but maybe we really have to offer more in the way of incentives other than time off from work. I mean, there are a lot of people who are still pre-resistant to getting vaccines. And we're seeing more and more sort of open availability of appointments. Well, I think paid time off from work is key, not just time off from work. And that is something the administration uh, really pushed this week and offered uh, federal resources so that, well, it only applies for small businesses, but it, it reimburses them for giving employees time off to get the shots. But I think, you know, we, we're going to start to see more of these freebie offers, but I also think that... Maybe not marijuana. <laughs> maybe not marijuana. <laughs> Although with the, the rate that states are, you know, moving to legalize, then maybe maybe it will. Maybe marijuana. But I think also, you know, there, there's all of this paranoia about government um, implementing some sort of vaccine passport situation, but really we're, we're going to see that coming from the private sector and we're going to see businesses, event spaces, you know, require some sort of proof of vaccination to be able to participate. And so I think that functions as a pretty strong incentive as well. 
And I think the marijuana type incentives are really helpful and going to probably reach some fringes of people who were like, yeah, yeah, might as well. But I think one of the issues right now that we're going to see happening as the supply um, is larger than demand is moving the vaccinations out of these mass centers. Um, I think that could possibly help a lot if you can just get the vaccines to the people who either um, don't feel they have the time to go or live too far, if it's at their doctor's office instead or or somewhere, if there's a mobile van clinic that can go, you know, a mile away from where they are, then I think that that will, um, could help kind of scoop some of these vaccine stragglers up. Yeah, I know a lot of people who drove, you know, two and a half or three hours, to, you know, the sort of the, the, the vaccine tourism thing, mm-hmm. the people who were really anxious at the beginning. Um, and, and uh, you know, now, as someone said, we've probably gotten to everybody who has a car and, a, and an intense yeah. desire and need to, to get to the next group. Um, well, meanwhile, among the still quite hesitant are many Trump voters. Pollster Frank Luntz, whose focus group we talked about last month, held another one. And the headline in the Washington Post was, quote, I'm still a zero. Vaccine hesitant Republicans warn that their skepticism is worsening. Interestingly, this group was unmoved by the J&J pause, even though the conventional wisdom, as I mentioned, was that that would increase hesitancy. Um, Rather, what apparently freaked out this focus group was the idea that people were going to need a booster, a third shot. Um, We still have a lot to learn about what it will take to convince people. And obviously, there are different groups of people who are hesitant for different reasons. Um, are we are we making any progress on this front? Sort of addressing the, the, the various, I mean, you said, we're, we're addressing the logistics now, as, as Alice said, you know, giving people paid time off from work, making it available in other places. But I'm, I'm wondering about the people who have, you know, more than than just access issues. I think the the J&J news is sort of a good example of the fact that we still don't understand the American public and what their thought process is, because there was so much consternation at the beginning when there was the pause because of the um, very rare cases of blood clots that it would lead to more vaccine hesitancy. And there have been some polls now, including Franklin's doing some work on this as well, that to show that that isn't the case. Either people think it's working or, you know, this is just the safety process working or people think, yeah, it's like six clots. Why are they even stopping it? This seems stupid. It's, it's the opposite of what everyone was screaming was going to happen. And so I think we just have such a long way to go to understand what the issues are. And it was it was interesting. The story you were referencing talks about Dr. Fauci being kind of the worst possible messenger for that group of people. Obviously, he's he's been out in front. And I am sort of curious to see, like, you know, who who would be the right person? Well, and yet, I mean, Tom Frieden, the former CDC director, former, you know, under Democratic president, um, turns out to have done a better job at convincing these people than a lot of other people have. I mean, it's really, you know, I'm still seeing this debated in public health circles about what are the best approaches. I'm surprised, I mean, that there's not more research on this, although I guess we've never been in this particular situation before. I think it also just took until now for people to acknowledge that this was the hurdle that we should be focusing on. There was so much talk for months that people of color were the most hesitant, and that just has not borne out in in research. It's white conservatives. And so I think that that 
mental shift has taken so long that we're only now just starting to look at the populations that really are the most hesitant and think about what messages and messengers appeal the most to them. They, they'd best get a move on because I think we're, we're getting to that, you know, point. I think I saw predictions in the next two to three weeks will have sort of vaccinated everybody who, who wants to be vaccinated and going to need to move on to convincing the people who are not stepping forward voluntarily. We've sort of, I think we've gotten through the people who are really anxious to be vaccinated. And now we're, we're moving through the people who are okay with being vaccinated. And we're going to have to move on to the people who are not so sure about being vaccinated, which is going to need to happen if we're going to get to herd immunity. All right. Well, finally this week, hospitals, formerly the favored stakeholders in Washington, are losing some of their luster as lawmakers challenge their resistance to a Trump era rule, one that's going to be kept by the Biden administration, that requires hospitals to make their charges more available to the public. The Wall Street Journal, which has done some excellent work on this, which I think we talked about a couple of weeks ago, reported how hospitals managed to code some of the required price data so that it wouldn't show up in Google searches, which is pretty creative, after a bipartisan group of House members complained to HHS. The department issued new guidance, uh, nixing that technique. How much of this is going to hurt what hospitals' glowing reputations have been in the wake of COVID? Rachel, you've been following this. I have, yes. And yes, just a shout out to that Wall Street Journal team as well, um, who used some very creative tactics to kind of explore a very difficult data set to reach just because there are so many hospitals across the country. The price transparency issue has been one when I talk to lobbyists about it, they just realize that they have no friends in Washington on this issue. And I think that the the letter that you mentioned from House leaders um, was really striking. We don't see very often where a Democratic committee chairman and, you know, it's a bi- on a bipartisan basis, both at the committee and subcommittee level, is de- he's defending a Trump administration policy and really pushing for stronger implementation of that, which is, you know, such a striking contrast to, I think, some of the issues that we were talking about earlier. So I think this is kind of the the unicorn policy where I think there's this realization that everybody kind of wants this implemented and wants hospitals to be taking it seriously. And, you know, I don't think the gamesmanship is doing them any favors, but I think there's also the realization that HHS is doing a lot right now. And I think I reached out to CMS about this. And, you know, they say that they have been doing ongoing audits, but it's unclear, like whether how many penalties have been implemented. We should mention, I mean, this literally just took effect in January. So right. It is. It's, it's pretty it's a brand new policy. Yeah. But hospitals also had a pretty long time to prepare and um, file lawsuits and, you know, twiddled their <laughs> which they, lost. they were dealing with COVID, yeah. certainly, which uh, was a big burden. But I think there was some hope that you know, they wouldn't actually have to do this, but um, the courts definitely sided with the Trump administration on this. So I think it'll be an ongoing issue, definitely an interesting one to watch. I mean, transparency is one of those sort of weird subjects. Um, it makes a lot of people's eyes glaze over, including mine. But it's one that's been really important to Republicans because Republicans who oppose, you know, more government interference of the health industry want patients and consumers to be able to take a stronger role in their own care. But you can't do that if you don't know how much things cost, which is why transparency has been an important prerequisite for anything that Republicans would want to do on health care. And so there's pretty united, you know, uh, support for it on the Republican side. And Democrats, particularly, you know, in, in recent years with the fights over drug prices and surprise bills, also find transparency to be an important prerequisite to things that they want to do. So it's one of those things where it becomes, you know, bipartisan 
lawmakers versus the industry, which is just not the usual thing. But I'm I've been sort of fascinated to see this play out. And of course, next year this is going to extend to the insurers also, who I imagine will also not be thrilled about making their prices more public. I mean, this is this is just going to sort of turn turn into a big fight in the in the coming weeks and months, won't it? It certainly will. And I think as I'm talking to people in the industry too, they're kind of like all looking at each other. And there's this dynamic where like they they're like, "Well, if they're not if this competing system in my area isn't doing it, then I don't want to do it because if I'm, you know, complying, then it puts me at a competitive disadvantage. So I think if there isn't that strong compliance, and there definitely have been some um, complaints that the insurance industry's like disclosure requirements are later. Um, I think they would have all kind of liked to have that at the same time from the hospital side. But um, yeah, certainly lots of finger pointing to come. Um, and I think one other issue is that it's not just pa- like patients themselves who would be using this data. It's also like researchers and employers um, who would be like doing research and, um, you know, trying to build out their networks and kind of maybe create incentives within their um, insurance plans to keep costs down um, for themselves. So there is a, a larger health system impact as well, just beyond people shopping for their services online. Although it would be it would be really useful to be able to know, you know, first of all, what hospitals charge. And second of all, which we will see one one would we were expect to see next year the prices that insurance companies have negotiated for some of these things. It's one of those things that that would that will be super helpful to both consumers and, as you say, researchers and people who are trying to sort of bring down the cost of health care. Finally, we'll see whether it works. All right. Well, that is this week's news. Now it is time for our extra credit segment. That's where we each suggest a story we read the past week. We think others should read too. Don't worry if you miss it. We will post the links to these stories on the podcast page at khn.org slash what the health. Anna, why don't you go first this week? Sure. Mine is from the New York Times. It's by Apoorva Mandavilli. And the title is Vaccines Won't Protect Millions of Patients with Weakened Immune Systems. Um, Obviously, Apoorva has been doing a bang up job this whole pandemic. um, And I thought this one was just an interesting one to kind of point out um, because she was able to talk to a lot of patients and patient groups. And I think it's a subject that not a lot of people are thinking about. Um, It's a little under the radar right now that there's the possibility that if you're immunocompromised in some way, that includes maybe, you know, even just having had cancer recently. Um, certain cancers, not all cancers, at least what they're finding, that the vaccines may not work quite as well or possibly at all. And so, um, you know, I think if you're in the uh, in certain categories, you might know already um, that this isn't going to work for you and they're staying inside. And then there may be a lot of people who um, just have no idea and are saying I'm fully vaccinated and um, going about living their life. So um, just kind of flagging that. Yes, why why herd immunity is so important. Mm-hmm. Um, Alice. So I picked a new series that is out from Vox called Pandemic Playbook, and it is looking at comparing and contrasting how different countries handled the pandemic. And they have pieces out now on South Korea and Germany, and there's more coming soon on Vietnam, the UK, and eventually looking at our own response here in the U.S., And looking at, you know, obviously most other countries did better than the United States um, in uh, preventing infections and deaths. And this is taking a really close look at why that is and what some of the trade-offs are, whether it's, you know, invasions of privacy or restrictions on, on travel or other things that, you know, people in the U.S. would not have agreed to and just really looking at 
you know, what a, a strong public health response looks like, given that it's inevitable that new viruses will emerge in the future and we'll be in this situation again and hopefully we'll learn something. Yeah, it's a it's a really interesting series. I'm really glad they're doing it because I'm sort of fascinated by what other countries have done right and wrong. And hopefully we can all learn from each other because uh, it's unlikely that this won't happen again uh, in, in our lifetimes. Rachel. Okay, the story that I um, chose is headlined um, Border Fiasco Spurs a Blame Game Inside Biden World in Politico by Adam Kinkran, Anita Kumar, and Sabrina Rodriguez. This story stood out to me because when we're talking about these issues like possible transparency and, you know, all these other things that we help think about as health policy, you know, reporters and uh, just people in this world, I think um, this story did a really great job emphasizing all the other pressures on Javier Becerra right now and that kind of how he fits into this larger picture of the administration. And as I was talking about, uh, talking to people like former Secretary Donna Shalala about kind of what his priorities were going to be coming in, she immediately, you know, talked about this border crisis as something that's going to take up a lot of bandwidth. And, you know, they're all all these staff are trying to get up to speed. They're doing their best. Um, and I just think this was a really helpful kind of contextual piece to what they're thinking about, where the pressure is for them, and just kind of setting expectations for kind of all these other policy issues that we're watching. Yeah, it's funny, even though HHS has sort of a, a tiny piece of the immigrant and refugee issue compared to other departments, Department of Homeland Security, State Department, um, it's it tends to be one of the sort of sensitive one because, because HHS is in charge of taking care of the unaccompanied minors who come across the border, which is once again, a really big issue. It is, it is worth remembering that there's a lot to do when you are secretary. My story is from my KHN colleague and cubicle mate when we're in the office, Jake Hancock, and it's called UVA. Health will wipe out tens of thousands of lawsuits against patients. And it's follow up to Jay's Pulitzer finalist investigation about the University of Virginia having spent decades suing its patients, including UVA employees, for bills they could not possibly pay. As a result of the 2019 investigation, UVA stopped filing the lawsuits, but there were still thousands of former patients who'd been destroyed financially and still had liens on their houses and wages being garnished. The news isn't all good. Patients who've already had money and property confiscated as a result of these lawsuits won't get it back, but thousands of people with incomes under four times the poverty level will get a modicum of their lives back now, thanks to journalism. So that is our show for this week. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcast. We'd appreciate it if you left us a review. That helps other people find us too. Special thanks, as always, to our ace producer, Francis Ying, who makes us all sound okay, even when we're in different places. Also, as always, you can email us your comments or questions. We're at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org. Or you can tweet me. I'm at Jay Rovner. Rachel? At Rachel Coors. Anna? At Anna Edney. Alice? At Alice Olstein. We will be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy.